Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Managing Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. This week, in a stunning rebuke to the scientific community and to his daughter, Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump did the one thing you're not supposed to do during an eclipse. He stared at the sun. Almost the entire country saw at least 60% of the sun covered up by the moon. Even the president saw it, but in a move that is not a complete surprise, he looked directly at the sun without any glasses. Perhaps the most impressive thing any president's ever done. <laughs> <laughs> that is a talking point that Tucker Carlson took away from it. Mm. You know, we all knew that Donald Trump was anti-science, but I think now we know that it's actually really authentic. Like, he's so anti-science that he was willing to go partially blind. It was funny. I mean, I blogged this in a very stupid blog, but like how I said on an earlier podcast that any, like now it's a joke, anything that Ivanka and Jared tell him to do, he's not going to do just as like a fun gag. And Ivanka tweeted that morning, like, wear your eclipse glasses. And he didn't do it. It's just, I mean, I don't know how much clearer he has to be. Like, another... Ivanka is not an influence in the White House. <laughs> Yet another thing that Ivanka supposedly advised him on that he ignored. Later in the episode, we have joining us Van Newkirk, staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's going to talk to us about growing up in the South under the shadow of Confederate monuments and how the media should cover white supremacy. I don't think you can have a South that reveres those men and also is fully committed to racial equality. But first, our week in weenies. All right, first up is Sam Clovis, who is the Trump nominee for the top science research position under the Department of Agriculture. And surprise, he actually has no experience in science research. I don't think anyone is actually surprised by That's that. Joanna, did that surprise you? No, I'm not no. surprised by that. No. What a sad state of affairs. So he is a weenie because... CNN has unearthed an interview from him in 2014, the ancient days of 2014, where he had a failed uh, nomination for the Republican Iowa Senate seat. And this is what he was saying on his campaign tour. Someone who engages in LGBT behavior, sometimes, if, if, you know, I don't know what the science is on this. I think it's As far as we know, that's a choice that they make, right? So we're being asked to provide constitutional protections for behavior, a choice of behavior, as opposed to a primary characteristic. There's no equivalency there between the, the civil rights issues associated with those protected classes and the civil rights of someone who engages in a particular behavior. So follow the logic of that. If you engage in a particular behavior, what also then becomes protected? If we protect LGBT uh, behavior, what other behaviors are we going to protect? Are we going to protect pedophilia? Are we going to protect uh, polyamorous uh, marriage relationships? Are we going to protect people who have fetishes? Yeah, so he is equating LGBT behavior, which he believes is a behavior. Uh, he's saying that basically if we allow same-sex marriages then all of society is going to start crumbling. And what's next? What's the logical extension of this? That we're going to legalize pedophilia. So he said this while he was running for office? Yes. I love that this isn't a thing that you're like caught saying privately. It's a thing you actually say to get people to vote for you. It's like a proud 
part of his platform. <laughs> it was really fucked oh, up. God, and that's and that's 2014, and people are sh- shocked that we are where we are in 2017. Our next weenie is Paul Ryan, who has, I mean, congrats to Paul Ryan on coming out on against white supremacy. That's a very brave stance for him to take. However, he's not so far against white supremacy that he can't deprogram himself from speaking only in talking points. The specific event in question is during a town hall. He got a question from someone whose father had been killed in a shooting in Milwaukee. He was, his father was the president of the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin. And he asked Paul Ryan what Congress is doing to stop the growth of white supremacists. And here's what Paul Ryan said. You have my condolences. I've been working with your community uh, to make sure uh, that the kind of bigotry that you have experienced, and I know your community has experienced it. And and what I was especially pleased in Oak Creek is how this community has just poured out its support with the sick community and how the sick community was so forgiving. It's just like Heather Heyer's family. They just called for healing and forgiveness. And you set such a beautiful example five years ago as you do today. So he's like, yada, yada, yada. I feel so bad. And then he switches immediately to everybody is calling for healing and forgiveness, which is, I mean, that's what he wants people to be calling for. It's not necessarily the message that Heather Heyer's family, she's the person who was killed in the Charlottesville protests. Um, That's not even really what they were calling for, but it's really what Republicans want them to be calling for. And then he switches immediately to being like, guns are bad, but we should still have them. So that like the guy at the NRA who has him on speed dial doesn't come and give him like a verbal tirade. And our last weenie of the week is Steve Bannon, a perpetual weenie who will always be a weenie on here, even when he's not mentioned. The reason that he's a weenie this week is because Bannon is now out of the White House, and his exit has been very weird, I would say. Um, I think we talked about him last week and how he said that he resigned and then gave this unhinged interview with a left-leaning magazine. Now he's back at Breitbart as the top editor there, and he is now—I'm not exactly sure what his aims are now. I think they're the same, but now he's, like, going after Trump. In an interview with the Weekly Standard, after his departure was confirmed, which again, according to him, he resigned two weeks before Trump actually fired him. It's all very confusing and unclear. Uh, But this is what he said. The Trump presidency that we fought for and won is over. We still have a huge movement and we will make something of this Trump presidency. But that presidency is over. It'll be something else And there will be all kinds of fights and there will be good days and bad days. But that presidency is over. So he's made it very clear he believes that the Trump presidency is over. (laughs) And I'm not exactly sure what is beginning in his mind. What is his new angle here? Is is it like Trump is not racist enough? I mean, if I had to guess, that would be my guess. (laughs) Yeah, like Trump is not. Yeah, which is going to help turn Trump to more of a centrist, I bet in other people's eyes. I mean, that's the thing that these people are doing that like the alt-right is doing. It's moving the center to the right and to the right and to the right. It's like if you keep getting more racist, like, okay, someone who's not as racist as you is technically more to the center. Steve Bannon is still like the harbinger of the apocalypse. He's just now at Breitbart instead of within the White House. I mean, it's not like he wasn't at Breitbart before. Right. 
Ukraine. joining us is Van Newkirk of The Atlantic. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So in your essay, you talk about growing up in the shadow of Confederate monuments and not believing that they would ever come down. Can you talk more about that and what the effects of growing up in the shadow of those monuments was for you? What sparked the essay was, I think, uh, as this conversation about Confederate monuments, about the Civil War, uh, about the flag has gone on, not just under the, pr- the Trump presidency, but since uh, Dylan Roof's massacre in a church in Charleston, South Carolina, what I thought have been, has been missing from that debate is a perspective of people, one, who are Southerners, and, and two, I think, who were at one point might have been considered the targets of acts of terror in the South. I wanted to take a look at how the statues, how Confederate flags, how the reverence of things like plantations impacted my development growing up as a young black man in the South. I chose to focus on one monument in my hometown of Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Uh, I ran track, I walked past the statue, There's a block in Rocky Mountain, the heart of Rocky Mountain, historic Rocky Mountain, where there's a statue that's a memorial to Confederate soldiers. There is the old mill that sort of founded the town where enslaved people worked. And there's also a plantation. So you can walk through all three in the span of like a minute. Thinking about that, thinking about how that was just ubiquitous in my life, what does it mean for that to be ubiquitous, for monuments of people who enslaved my ancestors, and even more recently, monuments of people who kept, not my ancestors, my grandparents and my parents uh, from voting, from having civil rights. And for me, I think it shows just how clearly false and how clearly hollow the heritage, not hate, defense is. I think people really believe it, and I understand if you have a monument that shows you how great your ancestors used to be, how great this image of where you are and where you live used to be, this binding tie of, of white identity in the South, I can understand how difficult it is it may be to pull down statues that memorialize that. But I also understand that that recollection is a myth. It's a myth created during Jim Crow America to basically make people feel good about the state which subjugated black people. Uh, So we have to consider all those things. We have to consider the emotions of people who lived through Jim Crow, who couldn't vote to stop statues, who are alive today, who had family members who were lynched by people who waved Confederate flags. We have to think about all those things. I think the debate right now is missing the perspectives of, of people who really were the targets. And so that's why I did the essay. So you also went to Charlottesville and spoke with people who live there. And one of the things you wrote about was that while they were horrified, they weren't necessarily surprised because they've been living in this environment their whole lives. And now it's just like 
the media is coming in and being like, oh, what is the situation here? Can you talk about that? So what sparked my trip down to Charlottesville was this same reasoning behind that essay was we, we talked a lot about the people who were protesting in Charlottesville. And if you look at the video and the images, you had uh, your white supremacists on one side, clearly white for the most part. And you had your protesters who were also mostly white. You had the reactions of people nationally. You had the president. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? You had politicians uh, in Virginia who were mostly white. And I have a message to all the white supremacists and the Nazis who came into Charlottesville today. Our message is plain and simple. Go home. You are not wanted in this great commonwealth. Shame on you. You pretend that you're patriots, but you are anything but a patriot. You want to talk about patriots, talk about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. You had uh, people who were denouncing or embracing uh, violence on either side or on all sides, as the president said. Of course we're capable. I'm carrying a pistol. I go to the gym all the time. I'm trying to make myself more capable of violence. But I don't I'm, think I'm you had a focus on the people who were the historical targets of the Klan in Charlottesville. The Klan has had a long history in Charlottesville. It, uh, there have been cross burnings. There have been people who disappeared in Charlottesville. Uh, and I wouldn't talk to the black community about that. And I think what you get from speaking to those people is a realization that, one, the Klan's never really gone away, that they weren't really surprised that they came back, that they weren't really surprised that white supremacists came back to rally around the statue, but also that they've been fighting something a little bit more subtle, a little bit deeper, a little bit more difficult to pin down than just a statue of Robert E. Lee. And I think our hyper-focus on just a statue, just the symbols of white supremacy, sort of misses the ways in which uh, Black communities have been disadvantaged since the end of Jim Crow. So I want to talk about those symbols for just a second and then go back to your larger point, because it seems that while the statues coming down is such a small thing in comparison to everything else, the systemic racism, the deep history of racism that's continuing today, do you think it means anything? What And if so, what? Symbols are not nothing. Right. Symbols don't get erected. They don't, they don't get built uh, for nothing. They are built for a purpose. They aren't the end. Uh, they are merely the beginning. But as I said in the essay, you know, you, you have to have a beginning. And I don't think it's possible to visualize a South in America where men like Robert E. Lee, Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, men like these people who fought uh to defend slavery. And that's, you know, as much as people may want to bend the history, that's what happened. I don't think you can have a South that reveres those men and also is fully committed to racial equality. So it's almost setting the table before you can even begin uh, moving real policies forward. I don't think getting rid of a statue is going to say, increase the median household income for black families in Charlottesville. But I think if you have a Confederate statue and people are violently reacting to keep it there, how are you even going to, in good faith, put forward measures like a basic minimum income there? 
it's almost a chicken and the egg thing. I mean, it's tough. Uh, but I do think a South that does consider itself equal, say, in the future, where there is a racially egalitarian society, it would necessarily be one where there are no statues in revered high places of Confederates. It just has to be. So just from a coverage perspective, professional perspective, has the way that um, editors approach you pre and post Trump changed like to cover these sorts of issues? Because I feel like the basic characteristic, the basic, the deep seated racism in America hasn't changed. But now a lot of people are like, oh, now we have to deal with the burgeoning problem of white supremacy. Now we have to cover these issues in a different way. Well, I kind of feel like, and I, I actually would say lots of journalists of color probably feel this way too, like a bit of a Cassandra. Uh, I think people were telling in newsrooms across the country, were telling editors, were telling Americans that race is the thing, that the concern around statues did not start under President Trump. We had a national backlash against them. We had even South Carolina taking down the Confederate flag back in 2015 after Dylan Roof's massacre. And people of color were telling almost to a person, look, this is the issue animating people. People are having this sort of animated backlash against uh, people of color, against maybe President Barack Obama, who knows, but it is the, the issue of America. And now I think, you know, I think the Atlantic's a little bit different uh, because my editors have always allowed me to focus on these things and to bring them to the forefront, even when they weren't so apparent. Uh, but I do think you see in the media landscape as a whole, people realizing now, whoa, we missed this. And, and I think it was part of why people were so blindsided by the phenomenon of Trump, by the phenomenon of, of white resentment, by backlash, by how all those things are exacerbated and exploited under the umbrella of economic anxiety. I think people are finally now trying to realize and think about the legacy of race in America and how it really has never gone away despite our wishful thinking. And that's reflected now in the choices of newsroom. One of the things that I personally have been thinking about a lot is access because, you know, for example, I saw that, I don't know if you saw the Vice documentary uh, that came out about Charlottesville where a reporter, El Reeve, was basically embedded with neo-Nazis. So when did you get into, as you said, the racial stuff? When uh, the Trayvon Martin case happened, you know, Michael Brown and, and Tamir Rice and all these different things happen, every single case, it's some little black asshole behaving like a savage, and he gets himself in trouble, shockingly enough. And I was just thinking a lot about how that's a story that, for example, like someone who looks like me or someone who looks like you would not be able to do. We would not be safe. We would not get that sort of access to go in there, but it's a very important story to get. So I was thinking about how that knowledge that in that might affect newsroom decisions, which already skew white, um, becoming more obsessed with white perspectives as they seek to cover white supremacy. So I guess my question is, 
Are you is that something that you've seen? Are you concerned about that? And if so, like how do newsrooms counteract that temptation? I am concerned about this. I think as good and useful and actually just as incredible as that Vice documentary was, I think the more we do this micro hyper focus on white supremacists, the more we try to get our wrap our heads around them, the more they're in turn using that media coverage, that focus in order to legitimize themselves. And like you said, the point about safety, of course, I'm never going to go down and be able to get access into a group of people who are on camera basically saying they want to kill me. And I do think it's right to consider the safety of our journalists, of course. But you do need people in your newsroom who are going to say, look, for every piece of good documentary we have on white supremacists in Charlottesville, we need to do more coverage on people of color in Charlottesville. We have to have a balance. And, you know, after the election, we had 50 million pieces get launched about Trump's America, all these sepia tone pieces on people in real America, coal miners, people in Kentucky, West Virginia. They almost to a person happened to be white. Nobody is talking still about working class black and Latino Americans, uh, people who voted for Obama and may have been disaffected by by him and didn't vote in the election, people of color who were like that. We, we don't, I think, as an industry, do enough to focus on communities on the margins who are affected by these policies. And I think it will damage us in the long run. So you talked a little bit about it, but what is a good model for reporting on these kinds of things? What do you think newsrooms need to keep in mind? Like, one of the things that I'm nervous about seeing more and more of is, like, the humanizing the neo-Nazi piece, where where newsrooms are kind of propelled by just needing more angles. What do you think a responsible way of covering these issues is? I think this is where diversity turns from a watchword, from a slogan, to a real tangible asset for newsrooms. And it's not just a kind of shallow checking boxes diversity. It's it's ensuring that you have racial diversity, ensuring that you have a diversity of perspectives, of, of regional uh, backgrounds in your newsrooms. And I think that way, and, and not just among your writers, among your editors as well, right? In that way, I think you have a natural tendency to have balance. You have people who understand and, and are going to go after the urgency of profiling white supremacists, of understanding why they are active and what they are doing. But you're also going to have people in the newsroom who, say, who ask for resources to go say, uh, study immigrants or migrant workers in the South or other other problems that I think are affecting the country that don't get coverage. And, and that's really the only way to think about it is to encourage naturally a diversity of perspectives in your newsroom. Because um, I don't know if you can accomplish it by sort of a heavy-handed directive. It's more, it's better when it's organic and it's better when it comes from the minds of your journalists and editors. And the only way to do that is to ensure that they are not all from the same place, don't all come from the same college and the same community. You really have to have this as a priority, as your number one priority for covering America right now. This isn't really a a question, um, but if you've read the GQ piece um, by Rachel Kadzi-Gansa on on Dylan Roof, I thought it was incredible, but also such a great example of why we need journalists of color covering this movement and this issue right now, 
because it was done so responsibly and it was done so powerfully. And I don't think anybody else could have written that piece other than other than her specifically, but also her blackness was so critical. Like she talked about how her blackness shaped the narrative and the piece and how people treated her. Like the idea that you can just be an observer, um, objective observer, I think is in my perspective is, is also like a, a very white perspective when we're talking about a movement like the white supremacy movement and covering that. I, I guess if you have any thoughts on that, I'd like to hear them. Right. Uh, I think the most valuable part of Rachel's incredible essay uh, was not actually her profile on Dylan Roof, but her reflections on how it affected her, on how people looked in her when she sat in Dylan Roof's church. Uh, things like that are, are ways in which we understand how race affects people and how a, a person like Dylan Roof affects people who aren't necessarily directly connected to the community. And then also, I think, on the converse, in her reporting on Roof and on the consequences of his life, it gives us a different angle other than uh, that, that doesn't come from people who are, you know, I think lots of people were sort of baffled. How could we have a Dylan Roof? How could this ever happen? But folks like Rachel, folks like the people she talked to in the communities she uh, went to, this has always been something that, that, that folks are worried about and concerned about and have thought about. And so I think her piece is a very good coda on the reporting that we've had on Dylan Roof and on how this incident happened, both through her own reflection and perspective and through what she added on reporting on Roof. Now, the idea that we can be totally unbiased, robotic observers of events, you know, that's something I, I push back on in my writing. I, I understand the necessity in journalism to have a sort of disconnectedness, to be able to have perspective on what you are covering. That is important. But when I went to Charlottesville, when I, when I was in barbershops, when I was in restaurants and served fried chicken, it's impossible for me as a reporter, for me as a person who's grown up in similar communities to not have a connection there, right? And in turn, I think that actually enhanced my reporting. I was able to get quotes from people, get perspectives from people who may not have spoken to me as openly otherwise in a very frightening time. So I think we do have to balance our ability to detach ourselves from the scenario, but also our ability to be human. That is a balance I think good editors now are recognizing and, and, and finding a way to walk that tightrope. Van, thank you so much for joining us. That's all our questions. It was so great to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks. For the best segment of this show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we talk about how to handle the dicks. Gretchen, what are you doing? I am making a more concerted effort to stay away from the news on the weekends and from my phone in general. And it's helping, although every time I pick up the phone or pick up the news, like there's a feeling of like there's like a tight knot on my insides, like just expecting there to be news of nuclear war like oh my god I didn't read the news for two days are we actually 
about to go to war. Like, what did I miss? But so far, that hasn't happened yet. So it's all in all been a very good move for my sanity. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. That's what I talked about last week when I was on vacation and I didn't look. And then yeah. I did look and it was nuke news all the time. But being on vacation has made it like it was a good start to me not looking at Twitter in all of my free time. And now when I do look at it, this is like me quitting myself of junk, of like a junk food addiction. Like now whenever I like, okay, let me go back. So like sometimes I get, I use get migraines and I, a trigger of mine used to be like Diet Coke, but I used to drink Diet Coke all the time. So I wouldn't know why I was having a migraine at any time. But now whenever I drink a Diet Coke, I get a migraine. So the, the correlation is very clear. And now whenever I go on Twitter, I feel like a surge of panic, like not during the day, but at night instead of what used to happen, which is that I felt quiet panic all the time. So it's just like really learning to identify the triggers, you know, and it's good. Eight months in, we're finally getting a hang of how to acknowledge the triggers and avoid them a little bit. And how to not be on Twitter like from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. Being like, just like scrolling and being like, what is happening that, now? That too. Congratulations to us. Yeah. I got a Zoloft prescription. I never took it. <laughs> you just quit Twitter instead. I just quit Twitter instead. I'm still very, I'm still highly anxious. I don't want people to think that I'm not. <laughs> for listening to Big Time Dicks and thank you so much to our guest Van Newkirk. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Mondana Mofidi is our executive director of audio and we featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader. This episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. 